Good morning. Who is, and you can shout it out if you really want to. This is not one of those passive questions. Who is your favorite Marvel character superhero? Captain America? Oh, it's like a consensus. Wow. People in church don't agree about anything. Anybody want to fight him on that? Or we just agree and... All right, sermon done. Let's pray. <clears throat> Captain America is the best Avengers ever. Avenger ever, we can, we can be done. <laughs> we, um, you know, we really love... I, I got to go with Tony Stark. I got to go with the old, with the Iron Man. This is the original uh, in, the, in the current kind of reiteration of the, of the Marvel Universe. He is, he is hands down my favorites. Um, even though he really has nothing kind of powerful going for him other than the fact that he's got a really smart scientific brain. I think that's why I like him because... Iron Man is one of those things that's like kind of achievable, right? Like none of us are going to be Captain America and infuse ourselves with some kind of weird power serum. None of us are gods of thunder. But like we could probably build an Iron Man suit someday if we put our heads together and, and try it long enough, right? Why, why do you think, you know, the, the, the Marvel Universe, <clears throat> when you look at the, at the series of movies that have come out, and now it's so many we can't even count, their whole website's devoted to if you want to watch all the Marvel stuff, like what order to watch it in, do you want to be chronological or in order of when it came out or, you know, all those things. But, do you know, the, the Marvel Universe is the highest grossing movie franchise of all time. Like, so far, I think it was at, at the time that Endgame, Avengers Endgame came out, that franchise had made 27 plus billion dollars. Billion with a B, right? There, there is no other movie franchise that can touch that that. Sh- that set of movies or shows now that they're just making endless shows. You can't keep up anymore, right? But the reason that it's so successful is because we as a, as a society, as a culture, we have a pretty, pretty weird obsession with superheroes, right? The, the hero genre, the kind of supernatural hero genre of film has is, is been over, over the course of history kind of the best grossing, the most entertaining, the most captivating. People love the idea of superheroes, right? We're, we're drawn to it in, in general too, right? It's, it's like all throughout history, we have this fascination with heroes. Even when you go back decades and decades, you can even go back centuries, right? You don't have to look at the time when movies were a thing. Long before television ever existed, there was a fascination with heroes then, right? There was a time in, in Rome where heroes were the gladiators and you would follow them, right? We, we have this obsession with it. And, and I think... I think the reason why is because we have this draw to kind of might and power in some way, right? We love that there's something about them that is kind of above and beyond what we could be or hope to ever achieve. It's the same reason, psychologically, why we're drawn as a culture to things like sports, right? If you think about the mechanics and the logistics of sports fandom, it's pretty silly, actually, from a purely kind of science standpoint, right? Like we, we have a bunch of people in football that are bigger than us, stronger than us, and we just love to watch them on a field plowing into each other for whatever reason, right? At the heart of it, like football is kind of dumb, isn't it? But yet we love it. And I'm not saying football is dumb, I love football. So don't, don't hear me saying that, you know, the pastor said football's, no, no, right? But it's at, at its core, when you think about it, any sport is kind of silly. Like, why do we put two sets of people against each other and have them pit and compete and figure out why is competition even a a thing? We love the idea of those greater than ourselves. 
And we love the idea that we might achieve to it. And so the idea of watching people on a field doing what you could never really do is pretty cool, right? And we love to root for, for our team. In the same way, when you have a favorite superhero, you root for that superhero, right? And these movies just keep getting mightier, too. That's part of it. Part of the reason that I think the, the, the root of it is kind of this, this, this desire towards strength and might is because when you watch superhero movies, they keep getting more strong, more mighty, more resilient, right? Do, do yourself a favor maybe this week and watch, like, the very first Iron Man and then the last one in which he dies. Spoiler alert if you didn't watch it, right? Sorry about that. It's been out for like years at this point. It's your fault, not mine. Right? But what you'll notice is they're, they're, they're like two entirely different people. Right? There's, there's strengths that he didn't have before, and there's a level of resiliency that he didn't have before. Every movie they make, the heroes just keep getting mightier. Right? There's, there's, there's things that happened in movie one that were like, it seemed almost impossible then. But, but, the, but the hero of, of the movie six movies later could do that easily, right? Because they just keep getting mightier and mightier and mightier, right? But why do we love them so much? Why do we have this kind of crazy obsession with the might of superheroes? I think there's a couple of reasons. Maybe we enjoy kind of the escape from reality, right? That's probably a big reason. You, you step into a world that is nothing like the real world in which we find ourselves. And the real world can kind of stink sometimes. There's a lot about the everydayness of the world that we live in that would just be really nice to escape. We, don't, we want more. There's just got to be something better or bigger than, than this. And so these, these types of movies offer a fantasy world that give us an opportunity for escape, right? Let's be real. The world of Iron Man is so much cooler than your average Monday, right? There's no question about it. If not, then I want to hang out with you tomorrow. Because whatever, whatever kind of life you lead that's better than that, bring it on. I'm in. I'll, I'll cancel all my plans and I'll meet with you. Right? Maybe it's that we love that which heroes represent. Because right? what does every hero have? An opposing villain. Right? That's what makes a hero a hero. They need something to fight against or for. Right? Heroes fight for justice, to vanquish things to restore order. Heroes fight for all the things that we want to see happen in our own life. Let's be real. Our lives would be way better if Superman was real. Right? Like, imagine if Superman was real and just, like, lived in Cleveland. Crime would be down. The news would be really boring. Right? Like, nothing would happen that's of any kind of significance. There'd be, like, no collisions because Superman would just fix it all and he would just be there when he needs to be. Like, if the Avengers were, like, in a big skyscraper in Cleveland, it would be such a better world to live in. And so we love what they represent. There's a world that they can create that we really can't create for ourselves. And the world kind of stinks. It's hard. A superhero would be really handy when we look at all the evil that happens in the world and how simple the solution could be. And so we, we long kind of for, for those things to be real. Maybe that's why we love to watch them, right? Maybe we, we long for them to be real because we would hope they would solve our world's problem. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's that they have things and capabilities that we would never be able to have, and so we, we kind of wish we were like them, right? Who here hasn't wanted to be a superhero at some point growing up when they were a child, right? You put on the costume and you pretend that you're Spider-Man, right? We've all been there in some way, shape, or form. Right, whether you actually donned the costume or not. Maybe we just really enjoy the notion of triumph over evil. We just love bad guys getting slaughtered and hammered and put in their place. Right, maybe that's it. 
I would argue that all those things have some kind of truth, but I actually think that there's a real, a deeper reason than all of these things as to why we love the, the story of a good, mighty superhero. And, and to get the idea, we're going to look really quickly at, at Romans 12, or sorry, Romans 1, or 2. Man, I can't get it right today. Romans 2, 12 through 18. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And here's the key one. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law are is written that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's the word of the Lord through Paul. Thanks be to God. I'll make you stand for Isaiah, so don't worry about it. Now, this passage is, is talking about something totally unrelated. It's talking about the, the law, right? The, the, the kind of the, the law of the land, the way the world works. And what Paul is trying to describe in this passage is this idea that there are people that have never heard of the law or the gospel of Christ, right? And today that's true too. Like there are people in this world who have never heard. They don't know God's law. And so you might ask yourself, well, how can we expect them to keep it, right? If they die without Christ, they will go to hell. And you go, well, that's not fair. They don't even know what the standard is. And what Paul is saying is, look, um, they do know what the standard is. Because when, when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what it requires, they're a law unto themselves. So what he's saying is, look, I have created every single person that has ever existed with this ingrained sense of right or wrong. Can we take it down just a little bit? I'm hearing some, some echoes. Right. We have this, this ingrained sense of right or wrong kind of built into us. That's how you know that you know, your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't care about Jesus, still thinks that it's wrong to murder you across the street in your sleep. Be glad for that, right? We have this, this sense of right and wrong. You can tell, even the people who don't follow Christ, there are things that God bakes into us from the dawn of creation. And a sense of right and wrong is one of those. And so the conscience can betray us and we can be breakers of the law of God and be held responsible, even though we've never actually heard it because it's ingrained into us. Well, there's something else ingrained into us. And that's the idea of worship. Right? From the very beginning of, of, of time, when God makes man, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's Westminster Confession. Right? And so what we see is that God creates every single human that has ever existed for the purpose of worship. You are made to worship. You might think you're made to be a, a lawyer or a grocery store clerk or an accountant or a teacher or, or an administrator, or, or whatever, or, or a father, or a husband. And those things are all kind of true, but they're all subservient to the fact that your primary reason that you exist, why did God make people? To worship him, to glorify him. He made them out of an abundance of his glory. And so you exist, the whole reason you were made is to worship. It's who you are at the core, right? We are all worshipers. 
And so one of the things that results of that in the world of it's stained with sin is that when we are full of sin, that innate existence to worship doesn't go away. And so instead of us just ceasing our worship, our worship gets directed into all kinds of other areas of life. Right? Sometimes we worship things like money. Money is one of the largest things that's worshipped, or beauty, or success, or any other kinds of things. But one of the other things that we start to do is we worship people. If we aren't in any way defaulted to Jesus because sin stains us, our worship will latch on to anything that is bigger than us, greater than us. It's the reason you love football and the stars that come with it. It's the reason you enjoy looking at celebrities and movie stars and you envy them because there's a, there's a way, I'm not saying that we're all celebrity worshipers, but in some way, to some small degree, we, we do. The only reason we look up to a movie star is because we, we worship them to some degree. And we really, really, really do it strongly with superheroes. It's why we love watching hero movies. Sorry to ruin it for you. The next time you turn on Iron Man, you're like, oh, I do this because I'm a sinner and I worship Iron Man. No, right? But, but like a part of you, I'm not saying it's wrong to go home and watch and enjoy that. It's an entertaining movie. Go watch it. There's no like guilt trip about watching Marvel movies here whatsoever. They're some of my favorites. But, but understand that the reason you like them is because you are made to worship something greater than yourself. That's the core of why. We seek that which is mightier than us in the world around us. And whether we find it in the real world through things like the power that money gets us and the security and all those things that we like to worship, or maybe we worship other people, right? We put them on pedestals when we don't even really know them. Right? I've been watching over the last few months, you know, there, there, there is no question that in America there is a worship of Taylor Swift happening right now. Like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, you have to watch the tabloids. Like, no, I can tell you, no one cares about the, 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 the dating married life of Britta and I in that way. Like, no one cares. Oh my gosh, he put his arm around her. Like, like if I put my arm around Britta in the lobby, anybody here like, oh. No. Why? Because you don't worship me, as you shouldn't. Because I'm weird. But, but we worship things. We worship that which seems, is, or seems mightier than us. And that's why you love superheroes. So here you go. I really kind of ruined it for you, and I'm really sorry. Right? But we have to understand that this worship exists for us to dig into kind of what we have today. And so our Isaiah passage that we have up is for, for Advent. We've been looking at these names that, that we get of God, of, of, of Jesus prophesied in the book of Isaiah. So let's stand really quickly just as we read this one singular text. I make you stand for very short bursts of time. This is our, our text for the next, for last week and the next three weeks as we head into Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. You can sit down again. We'll make it easy for you. So last week we looked at this idea of wonderful counselor. This week we're looking at what it means that Jesus is a mighty God. 
right? Jesus is mighty in, in some ways, in a way that a superhero is mighty. There's, there's some comparisons that are drawn there, right? The only difference is that Jesus is actually real. So what we have to understand about this prophecy when we look at Isaiah and these names that we read in isolation is that the whole passage, all of Isaiah 9, is kind of dripping with a political context, right? Like, there's, there's a talk about this future ruler that is coming, and that's what it means when, for us, a child is born. The verse that comes after what we just read is, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. Isaiah is prophesying a coming ruler, a son to be born, a child to be born that shall rule. This is a political kind of government type of text that he's throwing out. And so these descriptions that he gives are of a government figure to come. And, and the people at the time, both in Isaiah's writing time and in the New Testament gospel, Jesus walking on earth time, that's the thing that they were looking for, right? That's how they took the prophecy. All through the Old Testament, we've had these rulers that have come and gone, whether it's been a judge or a king or a prophet or a priest, and none of them seem to have been successful at getting us to where we need to be. There's got to be a ruler out there somewhere who's going to do it. And Isaiah saying, for to us a child is born, a son is given. Here's all the names that, here's what he's going to be like, right? And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Oh, he's the ruler, the earthly ruler that's going to come and establish a government that isn't ever going to end. It's the government to end all governments, the rule to end all rules, the king to end all other kings. We can get behind that. Right? Isaiah is prophesying them their superhero who will come and rule in a way that no one ever could have before, who will actually accomplish all the things that no one else has ever been able to accomplish. And so the expectation is of this political figure that will come and do all these things. It's a powerful person that they're expecting, but a person nonetheless, right? The promised Savior would most likely be some kind of strong politician or general of some kind, right? The Israelite history was a, a series of all these failed systems of government, and so they're expecting and hoping for a superhero, so to speak. Something beyond what they could have asked for or imagined, but something still earthly nonetheless. But in the person of Christ, the fulfilled promise that's brought forth is something completely beyond that and unfathomable, right? When Isaiah establishes in 9.6 is the fact that the child to come, the Messiah, and this is what we get when we look at mighty God, is going to be God himself. It's not some powerful ruler, bigger or greater than anyone that, that has gone before him. It's God himself. And, and Isaiah prophesies this. This is why Isaiah 6 is so important, because it seems like no one in Scripture can, can grasp this part. It's like they skip over it when we get to the Gospels, right? Isaiah clearly tells them, there is one that is coming, a child will be born, the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. Yeah, we can get behind that, right? Prince of Peace, we can get behind that, right? Everlasting Father, okay, a fatherly figure that loves us and cares for us, we can get behind that. Mighty God, wait, hold it, what? That's, the, the, that's going to be, right? Do you see how when you read this text, if you're a, a, a New Testament time frame person, a Pharisee, so to speak, who sees Jesus claiming to be God, they're so flabbergasted by that. They don't understand how Jesus could possibly be claiming divinity. 
because they weren't expecting a God. But yet Isaiah tells them, the one who's coming will have these names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, God himself, right? And so the leaders can deal with the miracles, they can deal with his teaching, they can deal with his wisdom, they can deal with the fact that he's a wise counselor, a wonderful counselor, perhaps even a rabbi. They can deal with all of these things, but the claim of God is a really big problem, and it's what none of the leaders can get around, and it's what ultimately lands Jesus on the cross, What gets him in trouble is that he claims to be God, even though Isaiah says, mighty God will be one of his names. That's who we're dealing with. So the notion of Jesus as God is is problematic, even after his death and resurrection. We see this in the way that the New Testament writers start to talk about Jesus in various ways, both in the Gospels and, and far beyond, right? Let's look at just a little bit of them. There's a couple of verses that I, wanna, I want us to dig into. Uh, the first is in the Gospel of John, uh, in perhaps some of the most beautiful words of Scripture ever written. We've, we've talked about this. We've looked at the book of John at length before uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but here's the opening of John. I messed up there. Um, in the beginning <clears throat> was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light." The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John makes clear that Jesus is what what, what we refer to as the Word, right? Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke the creation into being through his Word, and what John is elaborating on and saying is that Word that, that God speaks in Genesis 1 that is responsible for all of the creating on all the seven, you know, the six days plus rest, that Word is Jesus. And Jesus was with God at the beginning, and he actually, the reason he was with God is because he was him. God, not a man who was godly, not a really high-caliber angel above all the other angels, not the chief angel, but God himself, and he was there. And and Jesus is the means through which God the Father created, right? God created through the Son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God himself. That word wasn't just with God, it was God. God, right? The author of Hebrews gets to it a a little bit as well. This is in Hebrews um, 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, where we are now, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, Jesus was the one through whom the world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word, by the word of his power. After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, he took the seat of God himself, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he's superior to the angels in the same way that God is superior to the angels because he is God. We get a little bit more information here, right? He, he Not only did God create the world through Jesus, so Jesus was creator, mighty creator, but he also upholds the universe by his power. 
So Jesus didn't just, wasn't just God somehow at the beginning. He's still mighty God today. He is the one who created all things and is the one who currently upholds all, all things. The current sitting place of Jesus is on the throne as the mighty one, as God himself. He isn't just superior to the angels. He is the one. Paul, finally, in, in many places, reiterates this teaching everywhere he goes, right? You, you realize most of the New Testament is after Jesus, after the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, really is, is the, the apostles and, and other leaders taking the message that Jesus really was God to the masses. That's most of what they're proclaiming, right? Because that's the thing that's most contested. People didn't want to believe that Jesus the Son of Man, was God himself. And so that's what John is saying in John 1. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in the opening of his. This is what Paul tells us almost everywhere he goes. Almost every church that, that he writes an epistle to has some kind of commentary on the fact that Jesus is God. Here's just Colossians. We need to look at Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This whole idea that Jesus isn't God, yeah, that's circulating around. Don't buy into that mess. It's a lie. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. All right. In case there's any doubt that Jesus is somehow just some high angel, the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's not just part God, he's whole God. He's not like a demigod like, you know, like in Moana or Hercules or something like that. The fullness of all deity dwells in him bodily. This, this child that is promised is the fullness of God himself with all of the might and power and authority that comes with it. With all of the, the, the ability to rule, with all of the, the calling that comes upon him to usher in the kingdom. <clears throat> so what does all of this kind of mean for us when we look at these wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father? How does mighty God help us? How does Isaiah's name apply to us today? Well, we have to remember the context of this passage, right? We talked about this. It's a political prophecy. The child to come is coming to usher in a new kingdom. When you look for a king, a ruler, in the world today, right, there's a whole lot of things you look for. <clears throat> you might look for someone who is wise. You might look for someone who is kind. Depending on your personality, you have all kinds of things, right? That's why we have division in politics, because when we look at our leaders, different people want different things from them, right? There's different character values that you place. Some of you care about what they can do more than who they are. Some of you care about who they are more than what they can do. You have differences, but the one thing that we want all of us collectively in a ruler is might, <clears throat> power, ability, strength. No one wants a weak ruler, right? Not in the, in the White House, not on a throne, not even in our homes, right? You don't want parents that are weak. You want parents who are strong, right? Most of you looked at your parents growing up as, 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 as strong, 
whether you liked them or not, whether you loved them or not, whether they were great or not, there was a, there was a strength, right? Every one of us at some point had the experience of looking at parents and going, how do they do that, right? Like, Graham is baffled. He tries to, like, come against me sometimes or he'll wrestle or something. I just pick him up, throw him on the couch. He's like, I can't do that to him, right? There's a might in the person who leads him at home, whether it's myself or Britta, right? Britta might be able to throw him farther than I can even. But we look for might. That's one of the biggest things we want. No one wants a weak leader. And so the truth of this passage is that we have a king, a leader, that is not just a, a good guy, a wise counselor. He's not just a politician that kind of knows how to get around the system and get stuff done. We have a, a ruler, a promised child to be the king who has the might of God himself. He is all-powerful, right? You can watch Avengers all day long, and the reality is that God's might could, could break every one of them with the snap of a finger, no pun intended, if you actually watched, you know, the snap of the finger. But, but that's, that's who God is. He has a might that goes beyond anything that we could even comprehend. We can't make up a superhero that somehow would capture the might of, of Jesus, the, the, the power that he has, the ability that he has. And the sad reality is that many of us in this world, we, we are more in awe of Captain America than Jesus. Right? We, we look at the strength of, a, of, of the average superhero, and most of us don't live a life of that kind of an awe for, for the king, for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Certainly not outside the church, but also not really inside the church, right? When we go through this world, there's this blissful unawareness of the mighty moving of Jesus Christ, right? People don't know that, that as things are awful around us, wherever we look, that mighty Jesus is working and moving and processing and thinking and establishing his, his kingdom. People don't, don't think about the fact that every single day that goes by, Jesus, as the king, the ruler, is waging spiritual warfare on our behalf to bring about the, the new Jerusalem, right? We don't, we don't think about those things in our everydayness of life because we're so distracted a lot of times. We're, you know, where there's strife and evil, mighty Jesus is in battle and ready to wage war. Where there's injustice, Jesus is bringing justice and judgment in a way that is perfect and final. And sadly, even within the church, we have this complacency around the divine might Jesus, right? We don't live and move and have our, our being as if it's led by the mighty Jesus God himself, right? We make ourselves the heroes of this life in some ways, right? We, we take very little risk as Christians or as a church, right? When's the last time you've put yourself in a position where if mighty Jesus doesn't show up, you're screwed? Like, in a position where in earthly ways, something's not possible. And the only way that you're going to get through that and move forward is if God himself does what God himself does. We live lives of caution. Right? And, and no one's asking us to instead live lives of reckless abandon. Right? There's a song, a Christian song out there that drives me crazy a little bit. It's called Reckless Love. You might have heard about it. You might even wonder, well, why don't we sing that in church? It's on Caleb and it's so great. Or the fish. Well, because God's love isn't reckless. Nothing about God is reckless. Right? 
To be reckless, there has to be a potential that it won't work out. But God's not reckless because God is infinitely mighty. When God sets his mind to do something, it happens. When God says, I'm going to usher in my kingdom, it's coming. When God says, I will care for you, you're cared for. When God says, I will provide for you, you're provided for. If not in this life, then the next. We've said this time and time again, but do you know that as a Christian, there is nothing in this world that can touch you? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, I could lose my livelihood. Jesus still has you in the palm of his hand. I could die tomorrow. Your next day will be better than this one. We serve a mighty God, and his kingdom shall have no end because he will uphold it by his divine power. And so we could live a Christian life in this world as if we'd already won, because we did. Because the king is victorious and full of might. This is the implication of mighty God. We can have hope. We can have reliance. He will not fail in accomplishing that which he sets out to do. We can have a certainty and a trust in it, and therefore in our future as well. So the question is, will we live and make our daily decisions that hold this truth, to borrow some constitutional language, to be self-evident? You ever read that part of the Constitution? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, it's not, sorry, not the Declaration, not the Constitution. I'm messing up my own government stuff, right? The whole idea behind that is that the foundation of why we say any of the stuff that we say next is because the truths that we're about to proclaim are self-evident. They're obvious. They're foundational, right? One of the things that ought to be self-evident in the Christian life is that Jesus is the mighty divine king. And that when you move out of this place into the things that God calls you to, that he has for you, You go with the infinite, never-ending, never-failing might of God himself. That's the kind of ruler he will be. He does not know how to fail. He cannot fail. He will not fail. He will bring about all the things that Scripture promises to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that in you we have a king who is mighty. That you're not just a a wise sage, a counselor that can guide us through life. That God's word, that the Holy Scripture isn't just a a life guidebook that tells us how to go about our day, but that it's the hope and the truth of the coming king. We praise you you that you usher in this kingdom, that you come with the full might of divinity behind you. Lord, we pray that as we seek to continue to grow in our faith and to lead lives, surrender to you that we might have a hope and a trust in our mighty God, Jesus Christ. We pray that your kingdom would come soon and come in power. We're ready, we're hopeful, we're expectant. And it's in God's name that we all pray. And all his people said.